0: If you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 2, is where we're going to start, then we'll be in Luke, and we will be in a lot of Luke. Matthew chapter 2. Now, the next 10 minutes, incredibly painful, incredibly painful. There is a payoff, however, so please do your best to stick with me. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start together in verse 1. Woo. Woo. Bless you. What time, what's that, what time is the first football game? I, I, I mean this. What time's the first one? What? Is it 12? Okay, the 11 o'clock service is in and early, brothers and sisters. Go Broncos? Jesus, Team Jesus? Oh, boy. I'm a Browns fan, so I haven't had a football team in 20 years to root for. So, I don't care. Matthew chapter 2. Here we go. Now we're serious. Now we're going. Survey says, start now. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King... Herod, I want to talk a little bit about King Herod. King Herod was a Roman client king. What the Romans would do is wherever possible, they would allow local rulers to stay in power, backed by Rome, paying tribute to Rome, indebted to Rome, but to rule locally wherever possible. Herod the Great was called the Great, not because he was awesome, although he thought he was, but because he was the greater brother. He was the older brother. So inherits his father's kingdom. Rome installs him. Uh, and then he reigns for 40 years or so. Uh, our best guess is he had 43 children, 10 or 11 wives, depending on how you count. Uh, massive building programs. But Herod progressively, I mean, Herod was, you know, <laughs> uh, insane maybe isn't the, a strong enough word. This was a guy who put to death a lot of his wives and a lot of his children. Now Herod... Right before Herod died, he saw it coming, he was very diseased, and so he gave an order to assemble on the, on the day of his death, to assemble the great uh, in Jerusalem. If you were an important citizen of Jerusalem, they would all be assembled in an arena and put to death the day he died so that there would be grieving in Israel. Right? This is how crazy this guy is. He had six different wills, naming his successor. And so what I want to do is I want to show you I'm going to fire up the iPad. Now, this gets really confusing, so please forgive me, but there's a payoff. So, wife, one of the wives, Doris, he ends up divorcing her, gives birth to a son, Antipater, who gets killed by Herod. You'll see a theme here. Miriam, uh, Miriam is killed by Herod. It was his favorite wife, but he suspected her plotting treason, so he kills her. She gives birth to two sons. They're both killed by Herod. And this is reflected in all of the different iterations of Herod's will. He marries another Miriam, and she gives birth to Herod, or excuse me, to Philip I, but he was suspected of treason, and so in the final will, he was uh, excluded. Then he married a Samaritan woman, Malthas, and and two sons, there were more, but two of note, Herod and Tippus, and a son named Archelaus, Um, and they become named in Caesar's or not Caesar's will, in Herod's will, along with Philip II, who was the son of Cleopatra of Jerusalem. He becomes a Tetrarch. Now, I know this is a lot, but just I want you to put on your thinking caps. Here's the deal. The last and final will of Herod, he changed it five days before he died, named his son Archelaus as king and his other two sons, Antipas and Philip, as something called Tetrarchs. Tetrarch means quarter. And so they would have quarter kingdoms. Uh, Archelaus would have half the kingdom. So if you take one kingdom, give half to one person, they're called, he wanted them called a king, and then give the other two, the other half to two guys. So they get quarters, they're called tetrarchs. Are you with me on this very confusing line of thinking so far? Now, they, the sons, because there were so many different wills, they all have to go to Rome to have the final will ratified by Caesar Augustus, who we have met. So, Archelaus goes to Rome with his supporters because the last will named him as king. Herod Antipas goes to Rome with his supporters because the will before that named him as king. And they proceed to make their case in front of Caesar Augustus. Philip II, who we saw briefly... He, after a delay, he comes, because he was named in the will too, and he comes, and pay attention to this, with a delegation of 50 Pharisees, Jewish leaders, who didn't want any of the Herods ruling over them. They would much rather be just a Roman province. Again, painful, but stick with thee. So, Archelaus shows up and says, well, listen, the last will named me king. Antipas shows up and says, yeah, but the will before that named me king. And the argument Antipas had against Archelaus was this, before Archelaus left for Rome, there was an uprising during Passover because the Jews had so resented King Herod, they started attacking Herod's troops. Archelaus, during Passover in the temple complex, orders his troops in, 3,000 Jews are murdered in one day. So Archelaus shows up saying, hey, I'm king. Antipas, his brother, is going, yeah, but did you see what he just did? And then finally, months later, Philip, the third son that was named in the will, shows up with a delegation of Jews who said, we don't want any of these three. Okay, are you with me so far? Caesar Augustus looks at this mess and says, okay, well... Archelaus, you're not going to be named king. I'm going to call you Ethnarch, and you get Judea. I know, this is awful. Try studying this all week. This is just ridiculous. And you're going to get half the kingdom. And then Philip and Anipas, you're going to each get a quarter kingdom. So this is what it looks like, all right? This is the decision made by Caesar Augustus, right here. This is really helpful, I know. (laughs) Do you see the red? Okay. That is Archelaus. The big point for you to know is Judea and Jerusalem belong to Archelaus. The green is all Greek-speaking stuff. The purple is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, for our purposes, oversees the Galilee where Jesus grows up. And the brown is Philip II, and he's not significant to our story, and he gets kind of the worst part of the kingdom. All right, so... When the three kings return back, Archelaus has half the kingdom, Philip has a quarter, and Herod Antipas has a quarter. Now, jump down in Matthew, flip over, stay in the same chapter, but go to verse 19. Now, do you remember the Christmas story, of course, where Jesus is born, the wise men approach Herod, and they say, hey, we heard the king of the Jews was born around here. Uh, Herod the Great murders some of the infants of Bethlehem, or under two years old, uh, some of the children of Bethlehem, trying to head off this other king. The holy family hears this is coming, and they flee to Egypt. And in Egypt, we read, verse 19, after Herod the Great died, so that's the dad of all of this, after Herod the Great died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, And said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, their family, they come back to Israel. So Joseph got up, took his child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that who? Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod the Great. He was afraid to go there. Now, why was he afraid to go there? Because Archelaus, right, what did he do? Murdered 3,000 Jews. One of the first things he did when he was in power. So, Jesus is raised hearing about how evil Archelaus is. Notice, having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. Who ruled Galilee? Galilee. Herod Antipas. I know, it's awful. It's awful. I'm so sorry. I feel your pain. Totally worth it, though. Hold on. Archelaus is ruling in Jerusalem and Judea, where Jesus was born right in Bethlehem. They don't go back there. Why? Because Archelaus is evil. So they go instead to Galilee. Who rules there? Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch. Now, flip over, if you would, to Luke chapter 3. Now we start to get cooking a little bit. All right? All of that painful background was to bring us to chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, we've been looking at John the Baptist, the context of his ministry. Luke 3, verse 1. Remember, Luke sets the time period where these events are taking place. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of where? Judea. Judea. Now, Archelaus was so evil, after 10 years, Rome got rid of him, and they installed Roman prefects. prefects. Five of those go by. The fifth one is Pontius Pilate. So it's telling us Archelaus is no longer in power. Pilate is in power in Jerusalem. But Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip are still ruling. So the ministry of John the Baptist takes place after Archelaus has been deposed, Uh, And that Antipas and Philip are still ruling as Tetrarchs. Jump down, if you would, to uh, chapter 3, verse 19. It's going to get worse. I know. Guys, I feel it. I know. We've read about John the Baptist's ministry, but notice verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Okay, now, just to keep score at home, fire up the thing. Okay, now, Philip marries a lady named Herodias. who she named after? Herod the Great. Okay, they have a daughter named Salome. Herod Antipas marries the daughter of a neighboring king. I won't give you his name because it's confusing. But the, the kingdom that was next to his that was powerful, he marries the daughter of that king. Herodias and Antipas are traveling to Rome together. They fall in love. He proposes marriage. She says, I'll marry you only if you dump your first wife. Who was Antipas's first wife? The daughter of the neighboring king, he dumps her, provoking that kingdom and insulting that kingdom to war. And he marries Herodias, the wife of his half-brother. Okay? John the Baptist looks at this mess and he says, how dare you guys call yourselves kings of the Jews? Because this action clearly violated Levitical commands all over the place. So he begins to preach against Antipas and Herodias' marriage. We find out from other gospel accounts that Herod Antipas, during his birthday, throws a shindig. He's already put John the Baptist in prison, and he's got a little party for himself. Salome, Herodias' daughter, dances provocatively, drunk probably. Herod Antipas says, that was so awesome, anything you want up to half my kingdom, you can have. Salome consults with Herodias and they decide, okay, for my reward, we want the the head of John the Baptist. So it's not only that Herod Antipas locked John into prison, but murdered John to satisfy the request of the daughter of this new wife. The marriage that John was objecting to. Are you with me? Okay, so... This is all background to see how Luke portrays the ongoing relationship between Herod Antipas and Jesus. Go, if you would, uh, to chapter 7. Now, oh, I, I feel for you. I know it's terribly confusing. Herod's and Philip's and Herodias's. Now, let me show you something. Herod Antipas was smart. He was shrewd. And one of the things, because he ruled in the Galilee, there were very, some very serious Jewish men and women up in the Galilee. Uh, Herod would mint coins. And it was common in the day to have your face on the coins, have your image on the coins. But the Jews found that offensive. And so Herod's symbol was a reed. Do you see those reeds? Uh, second, The second coin over from the left, you see that one that's bent over? It's like a reed swaying in the wind. And so, anytime you thought of Herod, his, his symbol was a reed. Now, notice Luke chapter 7 Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist. Verse 24. John is in prison. He sends messengers to Jesus. Jesus replies, those messengers leave. And notice verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John the Baptist Hey, Israel! What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So, Jesus talking to the crowd about John the Baptist and the the Baptist authority, looks at the crowd and he says, hey, what attracted you to John? Was he a reed bent by the wind? Now, was that just some arbitrary, he couldn't think of anything better to say there? Or did he purposely use the image of a reed bent by the wind that Antipas had used all over the place? See, I want to suggest that here, Jesus is contrasting the two rulers. Did you go out to see someone dressed in fine clothes and living in a palace? Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? No! You went to see a prophet. So he's contrasting this false pretender with the real authority John the Baptist had. Now, we all think Jesus is meek and mild, and he certainly is, but he's not always meek and mild in the way that we think. Because that's a shot at Herod Antipas, just so we're clear. Flip over, if you word to chapter 8. Verse one, bless you. Lots of coughing, lots of sneezing today, gang. Come on, take care of yourselves. Skip school if you need to, just to stay healthy. Kate, I didn't mean that. I did not mean that. I meant expose yourself to those germs, build up immunity. Now, Luke 8, verse one. After this, Jesus traveled about from town and village, from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve disciples were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Married, called Magdalene, from uh, whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Shuzah, the manager of what? Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support Jesus and the disciples from out of their own pockets. Now, this, we just skim over this stuff and like, ah, okay, whatever. First of all, that women are supporting the the, the male rabbi and his disciples. I love that because Luke has a very clear agenda and showing the significance of women in the kingdom. Number two, one of the women he names is the wife of Herod's household manager. The household manager was the singularly most important person that worked in the household. And if somebody of such stature as Herod and that person would have had some wealth. So, Luke is telling us, irony of ironies, who is funding the ministry of Jesus? Herod! I love it! And let me ask you this question. Do you think there was some conflict in the household between Joanna and her husband as she follows Jesus and supports him and he works for Herod Antipas? I mean, even when Jesus was walking the earth, it was a very expensive thing, literally and figuratively, sometimes, to follow him. Flip over to chapter 9. Jesus had just sent out the 12 to proclaim and demonstrate the good news about him and the kingdom. They come back. They're excited about everything that's going on. But notice what Luke says here, verse 7. Now Herod and Tipis, now Herod the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And others were saying that Elijah had appeared. And so others, that one of the prophets from long ago had come back. But Herod said, no, 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 no. I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now, men and women, first of all, how do you think Herod heard about all these things? Maybe through the, his household manager. But secondly, when it says Herod tried to see Jesus, that wasn't a social call. It wasn't just, hey, I'd love to hang out and get to know you, hear your story. Okay, this was to pursue Jesus. And if you study the geography of Jesus from this point forward, in fact, at the end of this episode, he withdraws to a cell named Bethsaida that was in Herod Philip's territory. But he never goes to the two cities where Antipas headquartered, Sepphoris or Tiberias. We have no gospel stories from those two cities. Why? Well, because Herod was now in hot pursuit. Really? People are saying, John the Baptist has come back? I put him to death once. Really? A prophet? I mean, so Jesus got on the radar pretty quickly. In fact, go to chapter 13. Oh, and this gets so good. You guys don't even know. You don't even know or appreciate how good you're about to have it right now. Luke chapter 13. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to Him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Right? So the Herod wants to see you and Herod wants to kill you are very similar statements. But then notice what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm sorry for offending His sensibilities. I'll behave. Instead, He says, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow, and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Okay, now, in rabbinical thinking, you're always contrasting the greater and the lesser. Okay, so the fox was always contrasted with the lion. The lion was courageous the lion was strong. The lion was powerful. The lion was noble. The opposite of a lion in rabbinic literature is a fox. A fox is conniving. A fox is a pretender. A fox is one who will flee from its enemies. So when Jesus of Nazareth hears that the most powerful regional official is out to kill Him, He doesn't say, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just going to really take it easy and I'll behave. You tell that coward that I will cast out demons and heal the sick and there isn't a thing he can do to stop me. I mean, I know Jesus is meek and mild, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. But do you have an image of Jesus taunting You're a poser, you're a wannabe, you're a coward, you're a deceiver, you're conniving. You tell that fox. See, I mean, we're all cool with the Jesus that carries a baby lamb, like his whole ministry. But what about Jesus with a whip? What about Jesus calling Pharisees blind guides and whitewashed tombs? What about Jesus? Oh, Herod's threatening me? Oh, well, go tell that poser. Go tell that pretender. I'm going to cast out demons. I'm going to heal the sick. And there isn't a thing he can do to stop me. Flip over, if you would, to chapter 14. Now, who did Herod and Tippus first marry? The daughter of a neighboring king. Right? When Herodias, the wife of Philip, divorced Philip, she said to Herod Antipas, I will marry you if you divorce your wife too. So he divorces the wife of the king of the nearest and greatest kingdom to him. This did, not go, this did not go over very well with that king, needless to say. And we have some indication that there were several battles fought, the, the greatest of which was in AD 36, but there was one fought prior to that where Herod Antipas marshaled the 10,000 troops against the 20,000 troops that were being brought by this other king. Notice an image that Jesus uses to describe the cost of following him. Luke chapter 14. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate how much it will cost you to see if you have enough money to complete it? I mean, that just makes sense. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. Hey, nice driveway. Too bad you couldn't afford the house. Right? They'll say, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And then notice this. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Now, is Jesus just pulling this stuff out of the air who did you go into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? I mean, would you just hear that? And would you go, oh, well, that's an interesting image. Or would you immediately know who he's talking about? See, Jesus is timeless and yet fully in space and time. And in a particular culture, fully aware of what was going on. And he was unbelievably fearless. Right? You tell that poser. Hey, if anyone wants to follow me I mean, what kind of loser starts a, a building project at, without first calculating how much he has to complete it? Or what kind of king would take twenty or 10,000 men against another king that had 20,000? In the same way, weigh out the cost of being my disciple. I mean, are these just random images that Jesus is using? Or is he just kind of... Making little points here and there. Flip over to chapter 16. So at this point, Antipas is known as having five brothers. Okay? And again, full brothers, half brothers. I mean, there's just a way of counting. So it was well known that Herod had five brothers. So Jesus tells a story, a parable. Notice Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. Now, who wore purple in the first century? Royalty, kings. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. That's a very Jewish way of referring to life in the age to come. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, and we'll talk about what that means, in Hades where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So this is an image of afterlife that we'll study when we get here. The rich man is in the place of torment. The poor man is in the place of eternal life. Abraham replied, son, to the rich man. Remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there's a great chasm and has been, that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let them mourn them. Now, maybe, maybe not. but you just happen to tell a story about a rich man dressed in purple who has five brothers? I don't know. I want to tell you about a man that lives in a white house that has two daughters I mean, you know, at kind of what point do you go, oh, okay, I get that, right? It was Obama reference, by the way, just in case you were, some of you were going, I don't. Flip over to Luke 19. Relevance is coming. Notice this. While they were listening to this, verse 11. Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now remember, Herod the Great dies. Archelaus and Antipas all go to a distant country, Rome, to be appointed king. And if you're thinking I'm making this up, notice the next sentence. verse. Yeah, still verse 12. Excuse me, (laughs) verse 13. So the man called ten of his servants and gave them ten coins. Put this money to work until I come back. Verse 14. But his servants hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, if you remember... 20 minutes ago, we talked about how the Jews sent a group of Pharisees to the distant country while these men were trying to be appointed king, saying, we don't want any of these guys to be our king. Okay? Again, is it just a random sort of coincidental thing? No, and in fact, we know that because flip the page. At the end of this story, the master comes back as king. Verse 26, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, as a matter of historical record, the Pharisees sent 50 delegates to Rome to contest the appointment of any Herod. When Archelaus won, he came back and had the 50 put to death their wives, their children, and their extended families. Jesus just happens to tell a story. Hey, I want to tell you a story about a man who was of noble birth but needed to go to a far country to be appointed king. His servants hated him, so they sent a delegation to oppose his appointment. And when he came back, he murders all of those who opposed him. You could not have heard that story. Now, Jesus is making another point. He has a very profound point to make about stewardship and the kingdom of God. But he's using a situation everyone would have been familiar with to make it. And then lastly, go if you would to Luke 23. Jesus and Herod finally meet face to face. Luke 23, verse 1. This is the trial of Jesus. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which wasn't true, and claims to be Messiah, a king. True. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And I, and I love my rabbi. He just says, well, you've said it. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I don't find any basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, hey, he stirs up the people in all Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, And it has come all the way here. Oh, Pilate said, was this man a Galilean? Now, who rules in Galilee? Herod Antipas. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also at Jerusalem at this time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions. But what? Jesus gave him no answer. He answered Pilate. He answered the chief priests. But when he came before Annas, he said nothing. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Now, brothers and sisters, why in the world will we go through all of that pain to simply make this point? When Jesus walked the earth, he was utterly and absolutely fearless. And in all of these small ways of intersecting with the tyrants of his day, Jesus Yes, carried baby lambs, and yes, was meek and mild. But he's also the Jesus that said, listen, let me tell you about a real prophet, not like this poser, like a reed is swept by the wind, right? Or, or when he hears that Antipas is trying to kill him, you tell that fox. Tell that poser, tell that wannabe, I will heal the sick and cast out demons, and there isn't a thing you can do to stop me. And then when Jesus is finally before him, you can imagine all of the questions. He doesn't say a word. He talks to everybody else, but not to him. I love my rabbi. There is so much fear in the Christian community today. And, and I get it. The world's changing. Things seem darker. But it, it is a bit out of place lest we forget the man we're following. We're following the most recklessly loving and subversive man that has ever walked the face of the planet, who did not need the blessing of the Herods of his day to see the kingdom of God move forward. We who insist we need the blessing of our Herods today to do God's work have missed that fundamental point. Go tell those posers that the real king of all kings and the real Lord of all lords, who could not be contained by death, who has defeated sin and evil, will continue his work. And he does not need cultural privilege or Herodian blessing to do it. And so we just want to come against all of those places where the church finds itself fearful now because it's been marginalized. We simply say we've never needed cultural favor to do the work. See, every now and again, the people of God need to just say, go tell those posers. We're going to keep doing what we do. Now, lest you think this is a call to radical disobedience and anger and hate. How did Jesus treat the rulers He was calling out? He died for them. Had Herod Antipas turned and received Jesus, He would have been rescued. This is the rabbi who in the most subversive way imaginable, simply said, forgive them. They know not what they're doing right now. So we have the Herods of our world looking at us, calling us into question, marginalizing us. And so what do we do? Well, the answer for many is to be afraid. And fear leads to anger, as Yoda would say. Anger leads to hate, and that is the dark side. But this is a different message. <laughs> Every now and again, men and women, we need to remind ourselves who we're following in to the world. We're following a man who simply said, Go tell that fox. Go tell that fox. There isn't a darn thing he can do. What kind of, what kind of king goes to battle against 20,000 men when he only has 10. A reed swayed by the wind. What's that? He called the powers out for what they were. Namely, pretenders, posers, wannabes who could hold not a candle of authority next to the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus. And so men and women might I invite you this week to do something very weird. That whenever you find yourself saturated by news, fearful of the loss of cultural privilege, you simply would say to yourself, go tell that fox that we will heal the sick and battle against the enemy. And there isn't a darn thing anybody can do against it. So close your eyes if you would. And I want you to find a place in your heart where you are fearful. And there is much our world tells us to be fearful of. Every now and again, we need to be reminded that we are swallowed up into a much bigger reality and a much more stable and secure kingdom. And would you invite the God of all grace and truth and all mercy and comfort into that place of fear to actually believe that Jesus is this good, this wild, this great, that you do not have to trust in the words of the Herods or the acts of the Herods of this world, but can have your full confidence in Jesus. And to the Herods that tell us we have to look a a certain way and act a certain way, believe a certain way, with Jesus we just say, no. No, we're part of something much bigger, more real, much deeper. This kingdom of relentless love and self-sacrificial service cannot be stopped with threats of violence or prison. So we continue, imperfectly, yes, but faithfully, day by day, to simply ask and live in a way that His will is done on earth as it is in heaven.